I'm just going to pray, kind of jump in. It's a, it's a lot to get through, uh, but we're going to do it. going to get, uh, prepare yourselves for kind of a stern warning, but also uh, some encouragement and uh, exhortation. Um, Father, we love you. Um, <laughs> we just want to confess again that we uh, can do nothing without Jesus. Um, we can't even, hearts cannot be transformed this morning um, without you uh, working and, and moving, um, so we ask that you would do that. Um, Holy Spirit, um, do what only you can do. Open hearts, um, give sight to the blind, and maybe even bring someone back from the dead this morning. Uh, we pray this in your name, amen. Um, uh, it's been an important study, uh, James has. Um, James tells you what a life of faith looks like. Um, all throughout his letter, really, James gives us these, these little tests of what genuine faith looks like, how you can spot a, a genuine believer, really. Um, these tests that validate or invalidate someone's claim to be a Christian. Um, James reminds us that being a follower of Jesus, it's not just about what you say you believe. Um, it, it's about what you say you believe, how that changes your life. Um, it's, it's about how you... Um, live. Uh, he says that the proof or the evidence of a, a true transformed heart is the way someone lives their lives. And um, so he gives us these tests of genuine faith. He says, you'll be able to see genuine faith in someone's speech, the way they talk to someone. You can see genuine faith uh, by the way someone cares for those around them. They don't show favoritism um, in, in a family. And um, he says, you can see genuine faith in Jesus when someone is gentle, they have wisdom that comes down from above and it results in, in this gentle life that produces peace and, and unity. Um, and here, he's pressing in on this genuine, this test of genuine faith that he says, you can see it by the way someone uses their money. Um, obviously, it breaks into two nice sections. Verses one to six, we'll look at that, that stern warning. This stern warning of judgment on the rich. And then verses 7 to 11, he, he turns to address another group and he gives this encouragement, this exhortation for patience for the oppressed. Um, I said last week we looked at chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. James was rebuking those who, who were planning out their lives as if God didn't exist. They were, they were planning out their lives as if they were the, the writer of their own story. Um, and James calls them to recognize their place in the universe. He says, your life is a mist. You're, you're here for a, a second, and then you're gone the next. Um, all of life is grace from God. So in, instead, he says, we should seek the Lord's will in all that we do. Um, and in today's passage, there's similarities um, and there's differences. Um, you can see he begins in the same way. Chapter 5, verse 1, he starts with those words again, come now that he used back in verse 13 of chapter 4. Um, both of the sections, in a way, condemn this pursuit of wealth that fails to take into account God and, and His will for humanity. Um, so there's some similarities, but there's really more differences, and the differences are very important. Um, some commentators will say he's speaking to the same group of people here, um, it, that he was in that last section and this one. Um, but most scholars are convinced that he's speaking to a new group here. These are two different people uh, groups that he's speaking to. Um, 
I agree with that, and I think it's obvious by the way he speaks here, by, the, by his style, by his tone. And in, in chapter 4, verse 13 and 17, it's obvious he's speaking to Christians, Christian merchants. He's addressing believers, and you can tell by the way he speaks to them. There's this kind of question and answer. He's, he's, he's exhorting them. He's calling them to repent and actually live in light of the reality of of who they are in their relationship with the Lord. But in, in this section, chapter 5, verse 1 to 6, there's really none of that. His style and his tone changes. And in this section, he's no longer addressing wayward Christians. He's addressing the wicked, the, the unrighteous people who are oppressing the poor. And in this section, his tone and his style are actually similar to the Old Testament prophets. Um, those who pronounced judgment and doom on pagan nations, which is a lot of fun, isn't it? Um, there, there's no hint of exhortation in 1 to 6. Um, it's a pronouncement of judgment on the unrighteous and the wicked rich. Uh, you see who he's talking to in verse 1. He says, come now, you rich. We know these people are wealthy landowners. You see that in verse 4. Um, as always, though, it's important to know, to, to kind of realize who he's not speaking to. Um, in this section, James isn't addressing all wealthy people. He's, he's addressing a certain type of wealthy person. Um, and we know that to be true for a couple of reasons. Firstly, because of what he's condemning them for. He's not condemning them for their wealth. He's condemning them for their sinful use of their wealth. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, it's just important to... We can't just take this text and, and, and apply it to all wealthy people. That would be a misreading of the text. It would be bad news for everyone in this room because, as you know, compared to the rest of the world, you all are incredibly rich. Talk to Mark about that sometime. Um, so that, we don't apply this text to all wealthy people. That's not who he's addressing. And the other reason we know that can't be true is because, read the Bible, there are wealthy people in the Bible who are part of God's family, the Old Testament covenant people, the New Testament church. Um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob were, were wealthy. Job was wealthy. Solomon, King David, obviously wealthy. In the New Testament, Barnabas was wealthy. Uh, Lydia, Priscilla, Aquila were wealthy. So there are examples of wealthy people who are counted as righteous in the sight of the Lord. Um, so he's, he's not, clearly not condemning all wealthy people. Rather, He's condemning the wicked, the unrighteous rich, for their sinful use of their riches. Saying that, I don't want you to get too comfortable. We, we, we don't want to just ignore or avoid or lessen the serious reminder about money and possessions that we confront in this text and all throughout the Bible. Um, the last thing I want you to hear is, well, you're wealthy, but you're, but you're part of the church, so you're fine. That's not the message of the Bible. That's not Jesus' message for you. Um, there, there should be this healthy nervousness that comes along with gaining wealth. You, you should be paying close attention to, to Paul in 1 Timothy 6 when he tells, he says, that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. You, you should be on the edge of your seat paying close attention to Jesus' teaching on wealth. Luke 16, 13, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. You either love one or hate the other. You'll, you'll be devoted to one or you'll despise the other. Jesus says, you cannot serve both God and money. And because of that, Jesus exhorted uh, his disciples in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, don't store up for yourself treasures here on earth. 
Treasures that moths eat, that rust destroys, that, that thieves break in and steal. Jesus says, store up for yourself treasures in heaven where none of those things happen. They, they, these things don't, don't fade away. Jesus says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. That's what captures the, 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 the affections of your heart. So we see in Jesus' teaching, nothing more clearly reveals the state of, some, of what's in someone's heart than how they view money and material possessions. So we can confess faith in Christ, but then completely invalidate that claim through opulent, indulgent, materialistic lifestyles, which clearly indicates that we can serve wealth instead of God. So you as a, a wealthy person this morning should feel the seriousness of Jesus when he says it's easier for a, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the gates of heaven. It should make you feel uneasy. No matter who you are, no matter how wealthy you are this morning, we should all take those warnings incredibly seriously. And James is presenting another test of genuine faith. Look at how they use their money. Um, he's speaking, though, directly to the wicked, the, directly to the unrighteous rich who are oppressing those around them. But I think he's, even though this is a letter to believers, he, he, he does that for us to listen in. He wants the brothers and sisters to listen in to this condemnation, firstly, in order to receive encouragement, possibly uh, for being the ones who are on the brunt end of the oppression, like the church is here. But he also wants us to be warned seriously of falling into the same kind of sin. So no matter who you are, let's listen carefully uh, to James here. Look at verse 1. He says, come now. Are you paying attention? Are you listening up? Um, he also uses this phrase as a way to introduce a new group. So last week he, in, he used it as a way to introduce us to these fools who were planning and living their lives kind of presumptuously as if God didn't exist. Here in chapter 5, verse 1, he's introducing us to you rich, which, as we said, they're not necessarily Christians who happen to be wealthy. You see from the context, these are unrighteous, wicked rich, these wealthy people who are oppressing uh, the poor, the Christian community in this context. Um, and like I said, the condemnation that he pronounces over them here, it has this tone of these Old Testament prophets. So there's this, this shift in his style. There's this shift in his tone. And James now sounds like Isaiah. He now sounds like Ezekiel or Amos, who, who used those same two words that James used over and over again. Well, these words, weep and wail. Weep and wail. The Old Testament prophets would use those words repeatedly to depict the reaction of the wicked when the day of the Lord would come, when the judgment would happen. Wail, cry out. It was only used in the Old Testament prophets and was used to refer to judgment. Weep and wail because the Lord is judging you for your wickedness and the way you oppress those around you. Isaiah 13, 6. Wail for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. So when you read those, with that kind of Old Testament pronouncement of doom, of judgment on the wicked, with that background, and also with the context of the rest of the text, we often can read, that and read those Old Testament pronouncements of judgment and think, I thought God was meant to be gracious. I thought, I, this, he sounds pretty harsh here. Um, well, that's because you're just taking those, those, those 
pronouncements of judgment out of context. When you go back and read why those prophets are pronouncing judgment on the wicked here, and you, you, you can't read it in a way and be like, oh, that's not fair. <laughs> you, you read that and you, you, you say, well, justice is being done. Justice is being finally carried out for these poor, marginalized, uh, needy people who have been abused and trampled on by these wicked rich. Which is what we think in our context too, isn't it? No one feels bad for the, the corrupt CEO of that multinational corporation who's, who they're trampling on the poor in order just to receive more riches. No one feels bad for those corrupt CEOs. We, we want justice to be carried out there. And that's the, same, uh, that's the same kind of Old Testament prophet tone that James uses here. Condemnation for the wicked rich who are abusing and trampling on the poor. Weep and wail, he says. And why? Why are they to weep and wail? He says, because of the miseries that are coming to them. And so with that kind of Old Testament um, background and the rest of the text shows us that, that, that the miseries that are coming to them James is not talking about earthly, temporal hardship. He's talking about the condemnation and the punishment that God will mete out to them on the day of judgment. So they are to weep and wail for the miseries that are coming on them. Not, not these temporary hardships, but this overwhelming trouble that will come to them when they stand before the Lord in judgment when He comes again. Which is also the message of Jesus. You'll notice that James just sounds like his brother Jesus. Jesus issues the same warning in Luke chapter 6. He, war he, he warns the rich. He says, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. So do, do you see the, the, the reversal that Jesus promises for those who hoard up their treasures here on earth? He says, Right now, you, you are rich. You're hoarding up. But, he says, you've received your, your, your consolation in full. He says, right now you are all laughs. You are stuffed and satisfied, but you're, not, you're going to be hungry. You're going to mourn and weep. See this reversal that he promises for them. Again, he's not addressing all wealthy people, but the, the, the condemnations of the wealthy throughout Scripture, they're almost always attributed to the misuse of wealth which we'll see in a second. But again, even though that's the case, don't sigh a big breath of relief. Uh, I'm, I'm wealthy, but I'm part of the church. I'm fine. And Scripture warns that wealth can be a particularly strong obstacle in Christian discipleship. We should, in a healthy way, be cautious of gaining more wealth because Jesus said it's, it's hard for a rich man to enter into heaven. We need to remind ourselves regularly of these warnings, um, we, should feel, we should feel the danger of living in our context, this Western context that doesn't only um, amassing wealth and possessions, it's not only con, uh, condone, con, uh, condoned, it's actually admired. It, it's actually the goal. It's what we're, we're kind of called to do, get stuff, consume. So we Christians need to come to grip with this passage in James and ask ourselves seriously and regularly, when do we have too much? And the rest of the structure of that paragraph is clear. So James begins with that announcement of condemnation on the wicked, witch, the wicked rich. Um, did I say wicked witch? <laughs> 
And then he takes a few verses to really explain why that is. He's going to explain why the the rich people are destined for condemnation. And he gives these four reasons for their future miseries. Um, Verses 2 and 3, he says it's because they've selfishly hoarded up wealth. In verse 4, he says it's because they defrauded their workers. Verse 5, thirdly, because they follow a self-indulgent lifestyle. And then fourthly, in verse 6, because they oppress the righteous. Um, So we'll make our way through those. Verses 2 and 3. First reason he gives for these people being destined for condemnation is because they have selfishly hoarded up their wealth. Verse 2, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat up your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Um, So there's James. He's picking up his, hey, life is transitory and uh, insubstantial theme again. The point is, is the fleetingness of wealth. He's saying, you've, you've hoarded up, you've stored up all this wealth that will rot away. And that pile of stuff is what you have placed your hope in. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Sounds just like Jesus again in Matthew 6, right? So he's basically quoting Jesus. Don't store up earthly treasures. Moths will eat them. Thieves will steal them. These treasures that are temporary, that do not last. And James is saying, that's exactly what these people are guilty of. But pointing out the, just the transitoriness of earthly treasures, it's not his only point in these verses. He's not simply saying, hey, don't hoard up stuff because it doesn't last. He's pointing out that not only will wealth bring no lasting benefit to its possessors, it will even stand as a witness against them. Look at verse 3 again. Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidenced against you, will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Um, so that phrase, will eat your flesh like fire, it's just an image of, of God's judgment. He's saying this, this is what all this hoarding up will, will bring you. That phrase, in the last days, simply refers to, to the days they're living in. Anytime the New Testament writers use kind of last days, they're talking about that period in between Christ's first coming and the second coming, the period we're in now. We're waiting in anticipation for his return, these, these last days. He says, you've, you've laid them up. You've stored up all these treasures now in the last days, earthly treasures. They've done exactly the opposite of what Jesus calls his disciples to do. And James says that that accumulation, that hoarding, that pile of corroding wealth is the evidence that these rich people are guilty of storing up earthly treasures, of, of, of valuing earthly things at the expense of heavenly treasures, which Jesus shows, that plainly shows where your heart is. He says it's, it's the evidence, it's the proof It's testifying against them that their heart is bound up by earthly things rather than by heavenly things. And because of that, what is to come for them is weeping and wailing. Again, is it sinful to be wealthy? No. What is sinful, what will ultimately provoke judgment is the misuse of wealth. And the misuse that we see in these verses is they've stored up their wealth as their treasure. That their hearts have been captured by their possessions rather than by God. Their, their wealth, it ceased to be something that, that 
can be enjoyed as a blessing from God. It ceased to be something that, that is meant to be used in order to fulfill His will, in order to meet the needs of others, in order to advance the gospel. Instead, they've stored it all up, and they will now suffer judgment. Look at the second reason for their pending judgment. In verse 4, they've defrauded their workers. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Um, This is a common situation throughout the scriptures. Uh, The wealthy mistreating the poor, defrauding their workers. Um, Malachi 3.5, I will come near to you in judgment. I will be quick to testify against those who deferred laborers their wages. Deuteronomy 24, 14 to 15, very similar to James, says, you shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on them lest he cry out against you to the Lord and you be found guilty of sin. That was then still happening in the New Testament. So in James's context, there was this increasingly concentration of land that was being um, owned by a, a small group of wealthy landowners. There wasn't really a middle class. Wealthy landowners and the poor, these farmers who were forced to earn their living by hiring themselves out to these rich landowners, um, Matthew 7, remember Jesus' parable on the, the workers in the vineyard? In that parable, it was significant that the workers expected their pay at the end of each day. Why? Because they're poor. Because they need the money that day for their, their daily bread to feed their family. Prompt payment would have been very important for these workers. And the failure to pay them could jeopardize life itself. James is pointing out that these wicked, rich people, they've, they've made their wealth by defrauding these workers. He says, the, 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 the wages that you held back are crying out against you, he says to, the, to them. Sounds like, you know, Cain's blood is crying out to the judge for, for God, for God to just, for justice. He says, the cries of these workers have reached the ears of the Lord, the Lord of hosts, that, that, word, that, that phrase, Lord of hosts, it's this picture of this, this almighty leader of a great and powerful army. It's meant to make you shudder. This, this, this thought of this holy one who will judge those who infringe on his commandments, who, who, who trample on the poor. In verse 5, the third reason James gives that these rich have miseries coming to them, it's because they've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fatted your hearts in a day of slaughter. He says, you've, you've lived your lives on earth for the here and now. You, you've spent your riches on yourself, on pleasure, on things now. These people are blind to heaven. They have no regard for anyone but themselves. He says, you have fatted your hearts, fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Um, that day of slaughter, it's meant to be this kind of terrifying and, and vivid description of the day of judgment. The Old Testament prophets use that imagery of slaughtering animals to detect uh, uh, the terrifying reality of God's judgment. 
You're meant to feel uneasy. You're not meant to be like, oh, that makes sense. It's meant to be terrifying. The prophet Amos graphically uh, depicted the, the wicked rich of his day who trampled on the poor as fattened cattle, ripe for the devastating slaughter of God's judgment. Isaiah, same kind of terrifying language in Isaiah 34. James is telling them, you've lived your lives for your own selves. One commentator wrote, the rich selfishly and ignorantly going about accumulating wealth for themselves and wastefully spending it on their own pleasures in the very day when God's judgment is imminently threatened. The last days have already begun. The, the judgment could break in at any time, yet the rich, instead of avoiding that judgment, are, by their selfish indulgence, incurring greater guilt. They're like cattle being fattened for the kill. So James accused the rich of hoarding wealth, cheating workers, living self-indulgently, and then in this climax of his rebuke, of his denunciation, he accuses them of condemning and murdering innocent people. That's verse 6. You've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Um, so the righteous person, this is someone who's morally upright. James is talking about the, the typical follower of God. These victims are, of these rich oppressors who were themselves innocent of any crime. They're innocent of any wrongdoing. They are the, the opposite of the wicked, unrighteous rich. They are righteous. They are innocent. And James says the rich in this situation have condemned and murdered them. He could be speaking literally here. Um, I think he's probably has in mind that the practical outcome of their actions of, of defrauding them, of holding back their wages which is the, the, the result of that is the poor starve to death. He says the results of your hoarding, of your cheating, self-indulgent way of life are devastating for those around you. And notice he adds that weird sentence that the righteous person does not resist you. And I think he's adding further proof that he's speaking about believers here and it's because it sounds with that one line that they are taking seriously Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he says in Matthew 5, 39, don't resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the left also. If anyone would sue you take, and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If he forces you to go one mile, go with him the next. Sounds like they're taking that seriously, and the result is they are being oppressed. Are you listening to that rebuke? Um, don't fall into this sin. It's easy to think, well, he's talking about murdering people. I'm not that bad. You should be weary of the, the chokehold that wealth can put you in. Wealth can be a blessing. It can be a gift from God, which is meant to be used to bring about the opportunity to do good, to meet the needs of others, to advance the gospel, to enjoy or, James says, it can be, bring you condemnation when you uselessly hoard it, when you unjustly gain it, when you spend it just on your self-indulgence. Um, before we go on to the next section, I just want to read you 
Paul gives this instruction to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 16 to 17. It's this kind of uh, great picture of what it actually looks like to, to, to have wealth and to be righteous. Um, it's this kind of contrast to the abuse of wealth that James gives. Um, 1 Timothy 6, 16 to 17, Paul says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. In this, he doesn't say they shouldn't be rich. He says, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainties of riches, but on God. Charge them to have their heart right in the right place. Their hearts should be on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. There's a blessing there. They are to do good, to to be rich in good works, sounds like James, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up treasures for themselves in a, with, that's a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. That's a great kind of opposite or contrast to how we should live with wealth. Um, let's finish by looking at verses 7 to 11. I'm going to read it again. Uh, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. There's a big shift in his tone here, isn't it? He he spends the first six verses rebuking, condemning the wicked rich, but then he turns in verse 7, and who does he start to address? Brothers, sisters. These are are believers here. He, He was sharply rebuking the wicked rich, for abusing the poor, and then he shifts his focus from the, the persecutors to the persecuted. From, from, he's moving from condemning the faithless, the abuse of rich, to comforting the faithful and the abused poor. And in this section, he's encouraging this group to be faithful in trials. And all of us should be listening at this point still um, even though you may not be poor, this is for every believer because every believer is going to experience some form of hardship. You will suffer. You will experience persecution in some form, some trial. Um, in a general sense, suffering, hardship, that's just the way of this world, this broken, fallen world, isn't it? We all will experience death and suffering. But we see in the New Testament that there's an extra There's a special kind of hardship that is reserved for followers of Christ. There's a rejection that only followers of Jesus will experience simply because of their faithfulness to him. So all followers of Jesus, pay attention, this is for you. Um, Christians will suffer and experience trials. and, And here James says, in light of that, and also, in light of the, the, the coming judgment of God that I've been laying out here, there's this attitude that I want you Christians to adopt. There's this attitude that's essential for you to adopt in the meantime. And in verses 7 to 11, 
he really leaves us no doubt what this basic attitude is. It's obviously patience. Look at how many times he says, be patient. Be patient. Have patience. Stand firm. Remain steadfast. The main message of verses 7 to 11 is, in light of the fact that you're being oppressed and persecuted, in light of the fact that you are experiencing hardships and suffering, and in light of the fact that Christ is coming again soon as judge and deliverer, you must be patient. Verse 7, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. So that word, therefore, James is, is saying, in light of the fact that the Lord will come again and judge those who are wicked, those who have oppressed and trampled on the poor, be patient. He says, brothers and sisters, you will be the ones who will be oppressed. That's what that therefore means. You are going to be the ones who will experience those hardships and those trials. You're the ones who will be trampled on. But Jesus is coming again, so be patient. That word coming, it's a very, very special word to New Testament believers. Um, it's this Greek word parousia, it literally means presence. His presence is coming. It's, it means advent. It's, it's coming. It's this, this word of anticipation that Jesus is coming again and he will come as conquering king. And New Testament believers look, look forward to the coming of their judge and deliverer. And James says, be patient until he comes. He issues this call for patience, for endurance, for perseverance, for standing firm until Christ returns. I think James wants us to see that anticipated reversal of fortunes, that thing that Jesus was talking about, that reversal. Jesus says, woe to the rich who received their comfort in full. Your bellies are full, you're all laughs, but... What's, what's to come for you is, is actually hunger. What's to come is actually weeping and wailing. There's this reversal of their fortunes. And James is saying, when that judge and deliverer comes, for those who have been patient, for those who have been faithful and steadfast, there's a great reward. There's a, there's a reversal coming the faithful, even though they experience suffering and hardship, there's a great reward to come. For faithful followers of Jesus, there's, there's this patient anticipation that, remember Samwise Gamshi said to Gandalf, when Gandalf came back and Sam saw him, he said, are the sad things going to come untrue now? That's what he's talking about here. This patient anticipation for Jesus to come and wipe away every tear from every eye. For those who have been trampled on to be vindicated. For the oppressed to become set free. James says, be patient as you endure your hardships. Anticipating that reversal. And then he gives us these examples to imitate. Um, first he says, be patient like the farmer who waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Being patient about it until it receives the early and the, the late rains. Farmers have to, they're hard workers. They, they do a lot, 
but they have to learn to be patient. They just have to wait. They can't make their crops grow. They can't make the rain come. They just have to wait for it. And James says, in that same way, you too, wait. Be patient. He says, establish your hearts. That means stand firm. That's Hebrews, isn't it? Stand firm. Hold on. Why? For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Because Jesus is coming again soon. Verse 9, he says, don't grumble against one another. Should bring you back to all of his teachings on the tongue. Okay, don't use your tongue to tear each other apart. Use it to build one another up. When does that happen? We, we don't grumble, we don't tear each other apart and, and kind of bicker when things are going great. It's when things get hard that we begin to complain and grumble against one another. And James says, when that hardship comes, seek unity. Seek unity. Don't give in to grumbling. Ask for that wisdom that comes down from above that results in unity and peace. Why? Again, behold, the judge is waiting at the door. (laughs) Jesus is near. He's just outside the door. He's waiting to turn that handle. So, James says, hold on. Seek unity. Build each other up. Be patient with one another, even though it's hard. Why? Because it's nearly over. And then in verse 10, he gives another example of patience in suffering. Steadfastness while under duress. And for that example, he points us to the prophets. We've done this already. Go back to Hebrews 11. That's what Hebrews 11 is about. Look at these men and women who who were faithful to the Lord. They remained steadfast even through immense earthly suffering. Look to Isaiah who was sawn in two. Jeremiah killed by the sword. That Maccabean woman and her seven sons. James says, that's a great example. He says, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. He's quoting Jesus again. That's Jesus' Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 11 to 12. Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Blessed are you when that happens. He says, rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He says, you're just like them. And James says, be patient. Be steadfast. And the last example he gives of this is Job. And if you know Job's story, that's a really interesting example that he gives. Um, because Job, he didn't do this perfectly. Um, Job was a bit of an anti-hero when it comes to having patience and suffering, um, which I find incredibly in, uh, encouraging. Job lost everything, um, yet, read his story. He doesn't just sail and skip through and he's singing, smiling all the way. That's, that's not what James is calling for here. That, that's not what real perseverance looks like. Job, Job, he lost everything, and he did at times complain bitterly about God's treatment of him. He, he, Job lamented. He asked, why? 
But he never abandoned his faith. In the midst of his, of his incomprehension, Job continued to, to cling to God and he continued to hope in him. He struggled, he questioned, sometimes he even defied, but the flame of faith was never extinguished in his heart. James is pointing to Job as a real gritty example of suffering in this kind of real gritty way. And here's what perseverance might look like in your life. You might not do it perfectly, but there's this clanging on. He says, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. He wasn't perfect in it, but he continued to fight for his faith. In the end, that's the, that's the beauty about having a story. You, you see the whole story. You see the end, and you see that he, he clung to the Lord. And in that way, he says, if you've heard that story, James says, you've seen the purpose of the Lord. You, you've seen what the Lord brought about in the end. You've seen how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Do you see the, the, the beauty of that? James is saying, church, in your present suffering, whatever any of you are going through, it's not the end of your story. God will transform your situation for good when Christ returns and is revealed in all of his glory. He says it's going to take a while. You're going to have to wait for it. It's going to take patience for you to endure you might just be in the middle of your story when everything is falling apart like Job was in the middle of his story, but have patience until the end. When Christ returns in his glory as our judge and our defender, he will transform your situation for good and forever. Why? Because he is compassionate and merciful. In the midst of your suffering, whatever that looks like in your life right now, James says, brother, sister, be patient because Jesus is coming again soon. Your fortunes will be reversed when he comes in all of his glory. He will make all the sad things come untrue. So be patient, be steadfast, stand firm. And one of the clearest examples of this Reversal pattern is found in Psalm 37. I'm just going to end by reading a section of that psalm. It's a beautiful song of encouragement that's directly directed to the righteous. Um, you see in the psalm that the righteous are described as being poor and needy. They're those who are suffering persecution at the hands of the wicked. In the psalm, they're tempted to be envious of the evildoer and their kind of earthly prosperity. But in that psalm, David, like James, he's encouraging the righteous to be patient. I'll read it. He says, fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Why? For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Instead, he says, trust in the Lord and do good. That's James, isn't it? 
Trust in the Lord and, and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. That's a line, isn't it? Befriend faithfulness. Make faithfulness your friend. He says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Do you see the significance of that, of that verse? It, it kind of makes sense of that, hey, where your treasures are, that's where your heart is and the implications of that. Psalm 37 says, delight yourself in the Lord. Make him be where your heart is. Store your treasures in him and make him what you delight in most. And David says, if you do that, he'll give you the desires of your heart. He'll, he'll be able to give you, fulfill those desires. He says, if you delight in, in me, what you find in me never ends. If you, if you place your treasure, if you delight in earthly things, those things are going to wither away. But if you delight in my mercy, in my grace, in my love, those things never end. I'll continue to pour those out on you forever. Isn't that amazing? Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. He goes on, commit your way to the Lord. He's saying what James says, stand firm. Commit your way to him, trust in him, and he will act. That's significant. He is the one who will act, not you. He's not, you, you are not called to, to lash out. You're not called to get revenge. You're called to trust him and let him act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your, and your justice as the noonday. He says that, that, that verse that you've all heard, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. That's what James is saying. Be still before the Lord and wait. Have patience. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over that man who carries out the evil devices. Refrain from anger, anger forsake wrath. Fret not yourselves, it tends only to evil. The evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land.